Hello. Hello. Um, and could I ask you what you had for breakfast this morning? I just had a bowl of muesli. A bowl of muesli. <laughs> With extra pumpkin seeds and raisins. Where do you get your muesli from? Do you make it? No, we, we <laughs> just buy it. It's, um, it's old. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast looking beneath the surface of Japan. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, my guest is Thomas Frabel, the head chef of Anua, a restaurant that opened here in Tokyo at the end of June last year. Its opening was met with fanfare and excitement by food lovers across the city. For Frabel was not your ordinary chef. He had descended from his role as the head of recipe development at Copenhagen's Noma Restaurant, a four-time winner of the world's best restaurant award. This interview was originally recorded just after Anua opened, but that interview was unfortunately lost to the annals of time. Eight months on, Thomas kindly invited me back to his restaurant not long after the announcement that he and his team had just won the Arrival of the Year Award at this year's World Restaurant Awards. Just a word of caution before we get started. This episode contains some pretty saucy descriptions of tomatoes and mushrooms, so you might not want to listen on an empty stomach. Thomas, thank you very, very much for having us back in your restaurant again. Of course, anytime. Um, I think I need to start by saying congratulations on winning the Arrival of the Year Award at this year's inaugural World Restaurant Awards. Thank you. Um, but I want to take it back long before winning this award, long before opening Inua, long before joining Noma even. How did you first get into cooking? How did your experience as a chef start? My experience as a chef started maybe helping a little bit my mom and my, my grandma cooking at home just to hang out with them. What and kind of dishes would you be making with them? I think it was always uh, probably the way or why I was falling in love with hanging out with my grannies in the kitchen is um, getting raw cookie dough. <laughs> I guess that's the trick for every child. Just sweets. Uh, sweets. I mean, there's nothing... There. Butter, sugar, and flour, um, and maybe some aromats. There's, there's no kid who's not gonna love it. So I guess that's maybe the very, very, very seed. Looking back, why I started hanging out more in the kitchen. All started with cookie dough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even with this early enjoyment in the kitchen, Thomas didn't jump straight into becoming a chef. Instead, he turned to his first true love: football, or soccer, for you Americans out there. But he never quite made it as a pro. So he began to look for a job in his hometown of Magdeburg, a small city just outside Berlin. Where I'm from, uh, the unemployment rate was above 20%. And um, at the time also, my father was running two small businesses, um, small bistros, uh, like a beer garden type of German setup. Um, and good enough to supply or to have two families survive from, from that business. And my parents said, okay, you were never into, into this whole IT thing, you were never into cars or anything. Why we just don't try to, you know, see how you are as a chef and maybe in order to help your father eventually, to support your father, mm. and if things go well, to take over his business. So Thomas undertook a three-year apprenticeship, spending three to four days each week in a restaurant and the rest studying his art of cooking with the aim of helping out his father. But it was not to last. Or well, two years in, my father 
uh, way before that um, he had a very bad car accident but by the time I was in a second um, year of apprenticeship his health conditions became worse and he had to give up his um, business um, so that was with that of course that opportunity was gone but nevertheless um, I was reading a book um, about a German chef his name is Eckhart Witzigmann and he talks about uh, his past 60 years of his life about as a chef and of course I like the cooking, yet I didn't understand at that time the simplicity of his style. Mm. Um, but what I was falling in love with was his lifestyle and the way he got to travel and to see the world, um, get to know different people, uh, cultures, ingredients, simply to see and travel the world through the eyes of a chef. So how old were you when you made the decision and then that's what you wanted to be? Well, when I was 17, second, se second year apprenticeship, I thought then maybe if I'm becoming good enough, mm. I knew I probably would never be as good as this person. But maybe if I become good enough as a chef, I will be able to be free, uh, be free to decide for myself where I would like to work and where I would like to live. I would never be able to be free financially, um, but yet if you, wherever you look, chefs are always needed. That was probably my driving or driving force for the first, I would say, 10 years of my, of my career. That driving force ultimately saw Thomas land a job at a restaurant that anyone who's interested in food has probably heard of and almost certainly wants to eat at. It's called Noma. Led by Danish chef Renny Redzepi, Noma has won the title of best restaurant in the world four times this decade. The first time in 2010, the year after Thomas joined as a chef de partie. I joined Noma 2009 in the summer, mm. early summer. And the reason why I went there is, um, or why I wanted to work there is because I had uh, 2009 in, on a called January lunch Saturday um, a meal there, a menu. And I was um, completely fascinated and blown away by the food, um, by the style of service, and, and just by the whole space. And went back to my uh, place where I was working before Noma and I told my head chef, look, I went to Copenhagen, this place, Noma, I want to work there. And he said, okay, let me see what I can do for you. I'm... Um, I have met uh, Red Zeppi before, let me call him up. And for some reason, a few weeks later, my head chef at the time I was working for received an invitation for an event called um, Cook It Raw. Cook It Raw. Cook It Raw, um, which was the first edition at the time. And that took place in Copenhagen at Noma. It was organized by René. And so I went there to Cook It Raw for a three-day event, I stayed, extended my stay for five days as a trial. Um, Noma at this, in this year was voted to be number three at the world's 50 best, which uh, ma suddenly made them be more busy. Mm. <laughs> Not surprising. He opened up one more position and I was at the time just fortunate enough to get this position because I was at the, at the right time, at the right place. So what did you join us in the kitchen? I joined as a chef de party. Um, and 
that's what I did probably. Yeah, that's what I did for the first one and a half years. And do you remember what it was about that first meal at Noma that really caught your attention? The flavors, the, flavors. the purity and clarity of flavors and ingredients, um, the style of um, the clear inspiration to nature and approach not to put nature apart, more to um, almost copy nature um, in its best possible way. And the way of eating that you didn't only eat with cutlery, you ate with your hands, you um, ate with daggers, you <laughs> pulled things apart, um, the act of like opening something, which is like at the end going back, being a little kid who doesn't get excited to open a box and is wondering what is in there. Um, and they serve the, cookie dough. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, and ideally, in fact, there was a cookie inside the, uh, the tin at the time. Um, and that, of course, makes you think as well what it is about food um, and what is it you like or you don't, at the time, not really what I like about food, but what is it actually I don't know about it. Mm. For the very first time going to Noma then and working there, I could suddenly identify myself as well with Rene's philosophy and the way he was cooking and trying to um, highlight nature on the plate. So your, your approach to food then changed? To yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, there was, and before that, there was almost no approach to food. There was no connection to food. Developing this connection to food became Thomas's pursuit over the next few years, travelling the world with Redzepi and the Noma team in search of the best of the best of the best of ingredients. And by the time he left Noma, he had become the restaurant's head of recipe development. Well, by the time I left, I was more or less Rene's right-hand man. And of course, at the end, the, the, the culinary and creative genius was and is still Rene. Um, without a doubt, and also with his big vision and the way he uh, manages to surround himself with people who uh, follow him and also know how to fulfill those visions um, because they believe in the same thing. But I was also very much involved in actually opening restaurants. Um, so when we left uh, the Mandarin Oriental with the Noma pop-up, um, that was in 2015? 2015, exactly. January, February. And there was a moment where I said, okay, I left Japan and I knew I'm going to come back. I didn't know to what extent and certainly not to this extent, what it is <laughs> now. Um, but I knew I'm going to come back. And there was a, a moment at Noma where I saw Rene and Peter talking to each other. Peter Kreiner is the um, CEO of Noma. A very unusual conversation, um, and I was, I could feel there was something different. And the next day, I went foraging with Rene and his daughter, daughters, two of them, and I asked him, "Hey, Rene, yesterday, what was this conversation about?" And he was saying, "Well, um, there's an opportunity for us um, to open a restaurant in Japan." And he said, well, but um, we're probably not going to do it because we are simply too busy and we don't have anyone to spare right now. And I was thinking about it a little bit more. And a few weeks later, then I t 
talked to Peter Kreiner and I said, hey, Renee told me about this and this. Um, and I told Peter, you know what? I might be interested. Oh, really? Um, and how did he react? And he said, what, you exactly like you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then again, a few weeks later, I had another chat with Renee. And I also told him, look, Renee, I know you said you don't want to do it, but um, because you are too busy and there's nobody else, but if you think I can do it, I would do it. I will do it. The words that turn an idea and a passion into reality, a dream into something more concrete. And to Thomas's delight, Red Zeppi said, okay, then let's do it. And that was a moment where I was not only head of research and development, that was a moment where Rene took me on his side together with Peter and really trained me what does it actually take to open up a restaurant. Mm. When it actually came time to leave Noma, was it a hard decision to make? I mean, the reason, the reason why I left Noma is because of Inua. I wouldn't have left Noma if this wouldn't have been. So, and also the way I, in, at the end, me and Renee and also Peter left it, um, I didn't leave Noma. I mean, of course, I left Noma, but at the same time, if you want to bring it into a, a spiritual way, in, in our opinion, we uh, just extended the family to a, to a different country. My name is Chloe Villevier. I'm a chef de partie at Inua. I'm currently working on a plum leather dish. Plum leather? <laughs> so it's a plum juice dehydrated in a flat sheet and then pressed onto a piece of beeswax. I'm uh, Jose. I am the sous chef at the restaurant. Currently working in the test kitchen alongside Tony and Shui. And uh, basically, we are trying to develop... Today, I'm working on a pea dish. Um, so, the guys just went on a research trip to Kagoshima um, last weekend. And they found um, a really good farm and a farmer that were producing amazing beans and peas. So My name is Tony we and I'm from Finland, uh, working as a sous chef in a test kitchen. And uh, today we try to fail, create and uh, get some successful uh, For the rest of the day is preparing a dish based on deer tongue. So I will be grilling the deer tongue for tonight, curing them and prepping them, and then preparing all the herbs that require... After almost two years of research, studying local ingredients, sourcing produce and laying the groundwork for his new restaurant, Thomas opened Anua in Tokyo in June of 2018. It quickly became one of the city's most celebrated openings of the year, with its bold vision and unique fusion of Japanese ingredients and Nordic-style cooking. Um, but it was always the goal to create a space and a restaurant where when people enter the room, almost feel like coming to somebody's home. Mm. And I always said... It's once a beautiful home. Once, once, <laughs> it's very beautiful. <laughs> um, once they sit down, to give them the feeling that they can take off their shoes and can forget for the next three hours about all the negative and stress things, what has happened and what is going to happen. How has the reality of actually being placed in Tokyo affected that initial vision? It's um, being in Tokyo as a 
human being living, of course. Um, right now, it's very simple for me because it's very much sleeping and coming to, to Inua, um, which is also fine because everything is still so exotic. Um, I think what is still the, the biggest challenge till today is um, the reality of me not speaking, understanding, or reading the language. And also with that said, um, that I simply don't have a voice to Japan directly. It's all based on on people you have to surround yourself, you trust and, and you believe and you hope they can, you know, convert your words um, in the right way to your farmers and to your guests and um, and make this whole thing work. So essentially, let go is till today a very, very difficult thing mm. because I can't even call a plumber when it comes down <laughs> to that. So, yeah, important to have that team <laughs> surrounding you. Yeah. Do you think you've had to raise your game because of being in Japan, being in Tokyo? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but the thing is, it's not about had to, it's about doing it every day. Um, the moment you start to, 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 to stand still, especially in the city, and um, just taking anything for granted, um, I think you will disappear very quick. I mean, but that's also nowadays, it's, I think, in, in every major city like that, because maybe even more so in Japan, because the competition is so high. And um, I mean, just looking where we are right now, we have a walking distance of 10 minutes. I think we have two three stars, a two star and a one star restaurant or something. Um, so that, of course, as well as raise or, or um, raise the bar, of course. Um, but also... What is it actually we can bring or will have to bring to the table what makes people come to Inua? Because it has to be something very, very different to the rest of the city or the country because otherwise, you know, there's a million other places. Mm. And I think there's actually a million other places. <laughs> I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a fantastic city and country to, <laughs> to eat in. I think there's 160,000 restaurants in Tokyo, which is nuts. I think there's actually a million restaurants in Tokyo. A million restaurants in Tokyo? <laughs> yeah, I've one, heard... One I, have, I really, I really have... I've heard, I've heard something that there maybe not um, registered places, but if you take all the little, you know, stands somewhere in the suburbs and there's one person selling, I don't even know. I think it's up to a million almost. Staying relevant in a city with anywhere between 160,000 and a million restaurants is no mean feat. And for Thomas and Anua, much of that comes down to what appears on the plate. As with many high-end restaurants, the menu is filled with specifically vague dish names that only hint at the creation beneath and it requires a chef to come around and explain each dish to even slightly comprehend what's going on. Each of the dishes has its own history of research and development, and for Thomas, this process begins and ends with the ingredients. So Inua itself currently um, has 30 employees, and when it comes to developing the menu, we have three guys, um, Mio, Hiro, and Kentaro, uh, all Japanese, um, we call them the researchers. And they simply sifting Japan from north to south, east to west, the woods to the oceans, 
for ingredients. What a job. You can talk to them. It's, uh, it's very tough. It's very, very tough. Um, but they're doing an amazing job. Otherwise, Inua wouldn't be what it is today. And then we have currently Tony, Shui, Jose, and partly myself um, work, working on new dishes and ideas and formats for the menu. So, so that's almost a quarter of your staff. Uh, yeah, it goes into working on menus. Yeah. Um, which, of course, I think if we wouldn't be in Japan, if everybody would speak the language, and I think it probably would be two people less, I would say. But simply, again, time and place and our given setup, it is what it is. And that's also what we need because we are the new kids on the block still and um, establishing relationships in Japan is not the easiest. And it all starts with an ingredient or it starts with an idea or format. And um, when it comes to ingredients, I think the most important thing is really to understand the ingredients. When I was working in Germany till today, I would say probably I learned cooking the first 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened to me probably after the first or two years at Noma, um, Rene taught me to understand food. And I think that's even more important than anything else. Um, so, what does it mean to understand food? The smallest things. What, you know, how would your strawberry taste today when it's ice, co uh, not ice cold, but very cold outside in comparison to maybe tomorrow when it was sitting for three hours in the sun? What would your strawberry taste like if you actually stored, refrigerated for three days? Um, somewhere in a box or if you actually don't cool it down and serve it to your guest on the day. This understanding of their ingredients and how each one tastes under different conditions defines the cooking at Anua. And there is a near constant battle to source, ship and serve food in its best possible condition. Think back to a time you've tasted the most perfectly ripe peach, juicy but not yet soft, and you've longed for another. Now imagine the difficulty in procuring that same peach reliably day after day after day for paying guests. Once you find an ingredient, um, and let's just take a tomato, for example. Imagine you go to a tomato farmer, um, but the tomato has been sitting in the sun for five days. It's almost like slightly dried in. The sugars are warmed by the sun and you pick it and you eat it. Probably to 99%, it is the best tomato you can get. Maybe the best tomato of your life. And it's important to understand this moment as a chef, or in my opinion, for us when we go on those research trips. Because that is the peak of an ingredient. The, the, the peak of its quality and flavor. So then you, you pick it, and then, this whole, then the whole process starts. It needs to be delivered or needs to be packed, it needs to be delivered, and then it gets shipped, and da-da-da. So, pretty much the tomatoes rolling down the hill, the quality. <laughs> and it reaches the valley when it gets to a restaurant. So, how can you as a chef now, taking this rolling down the hill tomato, and take the, the energy and accelerate the tomato rolling back up your hill, to somehow get as close as possible 
to the moment where the tomato has been picked. So what does it take to give our guest a tomato which is almost as good as when you just picked it from a bush after sitting five days in the sun? And that's really, that's where everything starts, in my opinion, for, for us at least, to understand the ingredients when they're on their very best and what is happening throughout the process to get here and then how can we give our guest an ingredient back the best possible way. I, I want to engage with what you've just said, but my Neanderthal mind is just salivating over the, uh, the perfect <laughs> tomato. <laughs> but, but what kind of techniques do you use to ensure that by the time it's on the table, then that tomato or whatever produce you're using is fresh and, and as tasty as it can be? Well, we're trying to first, of course, be in touch as much as possible with our farmers to make them understand what we consider as, let's just stick to the tomato now, mm. <laughs> um, what is a good tomato, um, and tell them, okay, please try to pack it just in paper, not in bags. Um, yes, we are okay if you send it express and it actually takes only 12 to 24 hours. And no, we don't need it refrigerated because we're going to serve it straight away when it comes. Um, and then it's just really about to add your little condiments. Condiments. To me, the word says salt, pepper, maybe an Italian herb mix if I'm feeling fancy, or yuzu kosho if I'm cooking something Japanese. But at Inua, the word takes on a whole new meaning. Even though we were working in a setup kitchen for almost two years before we opened Inua already, we only started working on the actual menu 10 weeks before we opened, which is actually now looking also back extremely crazy. <laughs> but we were working on condiments, flavors. And that can be a smoked salt, that can be a reduction of cucumber, that can be, you really, really, really name it anything, whatever has a good flavor, an infused oil and so on. And those ones, those condiments we called Lego pieces, and um, we wanted to have a thousand Lego pieces before we start working on the menu. Because then it's very easy. A Lego piece, a few Lego pieces, you build a house, which is a component of a dish. Um, you build many houses, which are many components of a dish, uh, or which are becoming a dish, sorry. And then suddenly, those many houses are a street. And then you build more houses, which making more streets, more streets are more dishes, and suddenly you have a small village, and your menu is the village, built together from small condiments and building blocks. And, and just by adding then later the best of the best of the season, um, because you don't know what the season will give you this year. I mean, as much as you will forecast it or not, or the weather, you don't know how your tomato is going to taste. Mm. You, you don't know. Um, so therefore, it would have been not honest to us, not honest to our guest. And also, it wouldn't have been new if we would have served a tomato dish which we have um, developed a year ago. And till today, this is still very much the way we do it. Um, it's about finding amazing ingredients on one side, which is very much the researchers, um, and on the other side, developing condiments and Lego pieces, which is very much the development. 
and then eventually just merge the two together. Could you talk me specifically through maybe a dish or two dishes about that process of creating? The, there's one dish um, which we still to today have on the menu, and it's the only dish which was also one of the, is the dishes which was also on the opening menu. And um, it's a maitake mushroom. Um, and still to today, uh, one of our headlines um, is complex simplicity. So taking the mushroom as an example now, because it's, I think, in my opinion, the perfect example. Um, the mushroom is about one kilo big. We receive it and we age it for five days in a temperature and humidity controlled environment. After five days, um, we compress it in a oil, an oil which has been infused with rice koji. So we do our own rice koji. So that's the kind of uh, uh, the, the rice cake, make. the the molded Mold, the molded right. rice cake, which uh, is the base for sake, mm. misos, and so on. Um, so we make that ourselves. After um, the rice is completely grown in with the fungal, we dry it. Sweet umami, almost uh, a little cheesy note. Um, once the oil has been infused with the rice, we strain it. So that's our koji oil. Already there, it's quite complex. You need to soak your rice for one day, you need to steam it, and then you need to let it grow. That takes two to three days. You need to dry it. It's another day. Then you need to infuse it in an oil, blend it in an oil, infuse it. So just doing the oil is one week. And, and at this point, how far out from serving this dish are we? Well, then you need to compress it, the mushroom in an oil, and then you need to cold smoke it for four days. Okay. Um, and by doing that, we do that in our barbecue. Um, the mushroom absorbs of course the smoke and also releases a little bit of the oil so there we are at nine days after that you take your mushroom and you braise it for one hour in a water which has been or it's more like a miso soup kind of thing but what we do is we now we're not even starting talking that you have to make your miso for for six to eight, uh, 12 weeks you take your miso uh, you blend it with water you freeze it and then we call it um, ice clarification. Um, so you freeze the miso pulp and then um, you defrost it through a cloth so only the clear liquid drips through. And that's your miso water. You take the maitake mushroom, um, miso water, and you bake it in the oven for one hour. And then what you need to do, you just slice a few nice chunks and you serve it with the the cooking juices pretty much. So what at the end what the guest sees is a piece of mushroom with a soup. Simple. Simple. But quite complex <laughs> to get <laughs> to this point. That one dish, a slice of maitake mushroom served in its broth partway through a meal, requires a small army of chefs to be constantly preparing, smoking and cooking the mushrooms for nine straight days before they are brought to the table. Multiply that process across an entire 12 or 13 course menu to get a sense of the complexity at the heart of Inoue's operation. It's really, it has become part of, they're coming in, we know what to do. Um, we're checking the guest numbers for the next week or next two weeks. Um, and that's, it's just, you know, we know um, on Saturdays we don't have to smoke but uh, we need to come in on Monday to start smoking 
all these little things. And I remember one of the really nice things about that dish when I came was actually the first presentation wasn't on the dish in front of you as part of the course. It was slightly earlier on when a couple of staff members came around with mm-hmm. one of these kilo mushrooms yeah. in a pot, kind of lifted the lid and got <laughs> this waft of yeah. this waft of heady, umami, earthy mushroomness. And it's delicious. No, it's also um I think it's important for the guests to see sometimes. Um especially um a lot of I mean I think everybody, it's very rare that people see a one kilo mushroom. <laughs> Sitting down with Thomas Frabel, it is quite clear he is a man possessed by his art. His eyes light up as he talks through dishes and the extraordinary amount of time he and his team spends researching and developing each one. And yet he is not one to rest on his laurels, constantly coming up with new dishes, menus and concepts for Anua in a ceaseless pursuit of perfection. We are still learning and... Um We are still trying to understand um, the ingredients much better, our guests much better. Um, and what is to expect, um, I believe, is a restaurant which is not going to stand still. A restaurant uh, which will always keep moving, always trying to change. Maybe um, eventually um, we will extend and um, one of my smaller goals very soon is that um, our bar and lounge area for instance I would like to open that up um, as um, a cocktail bar and wine bar for everybody in case people just want to hang out for a few drinks um, we have a beautiful rooftop upstairs which um, I would love essentially to turn into a little uh, farm to table mm. garden type of setup or whatever um, it is to expect for sure to see Team Inua traveling all over Japan to We're just following your Instagram you see so much Kagoshima, like Kagoshima the other day it was beautiful yeah, yeah. Um, and and let's see I mean there's many things the, the, the beauty about Japan is again it's still for me undiscovered And the beauty about Inua and the place we are in is that I feel and believe opportunities are are endless right now. And coming full circle to your initial inspiration to becoming a chef, do you feel like you've got the freedom you're after? Yes. But I only realized that probably two years ago. That was Thomas Frabel, the head chef at Enua, and you've been listening to Deep Dive, hosted this week by me, Oscar Boyd. For bookings and more information about Enua, visit enua.jp. That's I-N-U-A dot J-P. Thank you, as always, for listening. And if you like Deep Dive, please leave us a review or a rating or share it with a friend you think might like it. Did you remember Mother's Day last Sunday? If not, send this to her to make up for being a terrible child. I know I will. You can subscribe to the podcast and find more episodes on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Join us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on the episode at Japan Deep Dive. Thanks, as always, for listening, and see you next time.